0: Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No bridge necessary. by 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Would you kind enough tell me whether or not you exercised any peremptories? That sound you heard right there, you may not know it, but it's a little bit of history. That's Clarence Thomas, Justice of the Supreme Court, asking a question in oral argument. It's the first time that that's happened in three years. Now, it's a mistaken notion that you sometimes hear that Clarence Thomas doesn't participate in the court or doesn't speak or doesn't write decisions or anything like that. That is, that is not the case. He does not generally participate in oral argument. It's been three years ago. Uh, since he asked a question of one of the litigants, and it's prior to that was about seven years ago where he interjected to make a joke about Yale, his own alma mater. Were any peremptories exercised by the defendant? They were. And what was the race of the jurors struck there? She only exercised peremptories against white jurors. But I would add that her motivation is not the question here. The question is the motivation of Doug Evans. She didn't have any black jurors to exercise preemptories against except the first one? Except the first one. But so did the prosecutor accept that one? Correct. After that, every black juror that was available on the panel was struck? Yes, he struck one. He gives a variety of reasons for this. Um, he's told interviews he, he's a little shy, which does not appear to be the case from, from what's known, um, that the questions are already asked, and that I think is probably what's really going on there. In other words, in oral argument, these justices are asking questions. Very often they're trying to convince the other justices or to put on the record of the case um, to get one side or the other to say something that might convince uh, either a future court or one of the wavering justices. But when you really think about it, these um, you know, both sides have supplied, supplied briefs to the Supreme Court, and there's really, you know, it, it it does make sense that you could stay out of oral arguments. Also, if you're the the heavyweights on the on the oral argument side, the ones that tend to ask the most questions. I would say, is um, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh have recently, you know, they're going to pepper a few questions in. Uh, My question was about the history. I thought that Swain had said that the history was relevant. In fact, Swain said history was the only way you could prove. But I wouldn't say that they dominate the way that Alito or Sotomayor does. Justice Stephen Breyer is always good, For you know, kind of like the law professor hypothetical in the middle of oral argument. Well trial with that background. Okay? And I don't think it's gonna take much once you have that background. So now let's look at one black juror, one white one, potentially. Okay, let's call them one and two. Both are women. Both are in their mid forties. Both strongly favor the death penalty say that I was a defendant and I was doing X. You know, he'll always kind of do a big hypothetical. And it's kind of a trap sometimes for one side or the other if they actually follow his hypothetical. But um, in any case, you don't have to participate. He doesn't. He does probably when you add up the dissents, the concurrent opinions, and the uh, decisions. Clarence Thomas is probably one of the most prolific writers on the... Court bench at the current time. In this podcast today, I just, you know, been very busy this year with my own, you know, full time work. And uh, also, there's been so much going on. I've been working on the Ark of Commerce series, and series always take a lot from it. I don't think that the Ark of Commerce is, for instance, irrelevant to today's time. There's so many of the issues that we're dealing with involve commerce. Trade, for instance, tariffs, the economy is probably a major question that's going to determine the election. So you see commerce playing a major role in politics. And I think that's why it's a great idea to do the Arc of Commerce series, which I kind of had on the back burner for some time. The uh, We did episode four. On Stopping Commerce and Episode 5 on Measuring Commerce will be next. I'm gathering information on that. Things like unemployment and GDP, do you think that they've been around forever? But they're not. They're not. Do you think that they may be totally objective measures of things? But they're, they're not. Um, they have their upsides and downsides. And that's just one of the many things we're going to talk about in addition to trying to round it out with the 1987 Black Monday stock market crash. So we're going to start from one crash to another in that arc of commerce series. But because of that, I haven't been able to address some of the many things that have been going on. And I just thought I'd do a kind of free-ranging podcast. Now, this is going to be, you know, and I apologize in advance, it's going to be a little more disorganized, say, than a little more free talk than uh, some of my uh, other podcasts. First, there's been a lot going on at the Supreme Court and a number of significant decisions where the two new justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, have taken roles in different ways. Um, This is—that's Clarence Thomas again— the case in which he asked a question is, in the end of the day, a sad one. And unfortunately, big issues of justice turn on some tragic events. And that's what's going on here in a case called Flowers versus Mississippi. Because you start with, it's the mid-90s, and an employee comes to work in a small furniture store in Winona, Mississippi, and Tardy Furniture opens the door and finds the owner his wife an employee just brutally murdered well the employee is still actually living but dies in the hospital soon later um you have a former employee curtis flowers who recently was fired a few days before his uncle reports his gun has been stolen he reports that to the police independent of knowing about this incident um there is um, money found under the under Curtis Flowers' pillowcase. There's a bloody footprint that matches the type of shoe he was wearing at the time. Eyewitnesses put him at the area in the likely time of the murders. Now, I must say, I don't want to spoil your opinion of the case. Uh, everyone's innocent until proven guilty, and all of these things could be attacked by a defense. But I must say that in six trials, and... There were six trials for Mr. Flowers, and the prosecutor and DA of this county was very interested in pursuing this case. It was presented, and Flowers convicted. The trouble is that the convictions were overturned because the prosecutor used his preferential dismissals of jurors to overwhelmingly exclude black jurors as opposed to white jurors. Not only that, the oral argument established that he asked more questions of the black jurors and indeed even pursued separate investigations of some jurors when he felt that they had not told the truth. One, for instance, said that they were, um, you know, uh, uh, not knowledgeable about the defendant's sister when they indeed worked in the same store the store is a walmart so there's some disagreement over whether one's near or far from the employee but in any case so there's so he pursued investigations of these jurors but in 41 out of 42 jurors over the six cases that he dismissed uh they were black and one was white including in the most recent trial that they were discussing five out of six of the jurors dismissed by this prosecutor were black. This troubled the court. And that did it for Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote the decision in this case. We break no new legal ground here. We simply enforce the decision in Braston that basically a a prosecutor cannot use race as a determining factor to to, uh, exclude jurors. Alito has a concurring opinion, concurring meaning that he agrees with the decision. So in effect, his decision is going to count in the vote total with the majority, but he has something else to say. Um, For him, it was the history of the case. He said, you know, if this was just one case, I might rule in the opposite way or join the dissent. But with this history of these six cases and during oral arguments, he's asking the lawyer, how come this from the state of Mississippi, how come the state of Mississippi couldn't uh, appoint a new prosecutor after this many overturns? And it just isn't the practice in the state of Mississippi to do that, to take over a case. Um, So Alito sides with the majority saying it's because of the history. Kavanaugh and his decision, we cannot rule out the history in this case. And you see in this, Alito and Kavanaugh joining with Roberts, Breyer, Sotomayor, Ginsburg, and Kagan, and separating from Gorsuch and Thomas who are looking merely at the case. It's a horrible murder. There are significant points that almost any jury in America could use to determine that Curtis Flowers committed the crimes and that, you know, if it's overturned, there may be no justice in this case. It's a very small town in Mississippi. It's hard to find jurors, a lot of connections between people. So having a connection with the defendant's not that strange. Having a connection with the victims not that strange. Thomas Fines and, and, and in his dissent, writes about how one of the jurors dismissed it was because that we, we mentioned before she worked in the Walmart with the defendant's relative. There's some dispute about how close they work together. Um, one of the other things he's going to say is that in, in another case, um, one of the jurors had been sued by the furniture store i suppose for non-payment so maybe she would have a bias and uh was dismissed for that reason so the there were and the questions that were on the record that the da asked were reasons that um you know engendered answers that were reasons that any da in america might be able to dismiss it sure so is there really prejudice here that's the way thomas and gorsuch look at it very much just straight up facts of the case not involving the history where Kavanaugh is saying you can't separate the history of the case. Interesting case, interesting discussion, of course, a tragic um, case. But uh, that's not the only surprise that came out of the Supreme Court that Thomas asked a question in the case. It it also turns out that Thomas ends up siding with the court's liberals on a consumer rights case. Uh, So North Carolina man, he's called by a company that is using the name of the Home Depot. It's actually more of a telemarketing company, but they have some relationship with the Home Depot, allowing them to use their name for what... mm, You be the judge of whether uh, it's a legitimate business or not. Uh, Also, Citibank is involved here. The caller tells him that his water is bad, and he needs to submit to a water test to find out if the water's safe. Um, You know... They are right in saying it's a water quality test, but the water quality is water hardness, which is not a safety factor. So a water hardness test, it's, the court records show, it could be you know a thousand dollars. They charge nine thousand, and they involve a loan scheme that you set up with Citibank and the Home Depot to pay for it. Um, the North Carolina man falls for this, and then is enraged later when he realizes that he is essentially he's been ripped off. He joins a class action suit with many others. Home Depot, who I believe should be ashamed for being part of such a scheme, allowing their names to be used, instead fights back and they ask to remove the case to federal court. Litigants or defendants are going to have a better case chance in the Supreme Court than they will in some of these state courts. Some are notorious. Some of the Southern courts like Alabama, North Carolina, Louisiana, you know, you hear about you know, in their politics, maybe at the legislature, politicians may be conservative. At the court level, many of these are quite liberal in terms of their adjustments, uh, judgments, or or at least many might consider them that way, in the amount that they're going to um, allow a defendant award. So companies are want to take these to federal court. Um, the court's liberals and Thomas agree on this. Congress didn't intend for defendants to move to federal court just to avoid a state court lawsuit. So um, Alito and Gorsuch, and uh, in this case have a spirited uh, dissent where they think that Thomas is just rewriting all the rules of what a defendant is and what the, the law is interpreted. But Cong- but Thomas is adamant. He says, well, if the dissent is right, that this is a mere um, change that needs to be made, Congress may change it. We may not. We, the court, may not. So he's differing on that on that case. Um, there was a decision in the gerrymandering issue and a very important decision on census, which I think has a lot to say about administrative power in general, on both sides, so and also prohibition. So history was really a big part of the Supreme Court and we'll get there, but you know, with so much in politics going on and so little time for me to address the appropriate historical analogues, like to find an analog for everything, to find to build that narrative, to discuss in separate episodes all the things that are moving so fast here. And yes, to an extent I'm talking about Trump and the way that he utilizes media and social media and can actually push the agenda so quickly before people even know what's going on. That's difficult, you know, for a podcast that comes out like mine to address it, but you know, I can, I can catch up with digests and things like that. But I'm also talking about the democratic debate and uh, forces like the progressive side of the democratic party, the AOC, etc., and how fast they can push issues and push the news and, so everything's kind of changing a bit, but I don't believe, I will, I will say this adamantly, I don't believe that we've entered any kind of new period of history um, where history doesn't matter anymore. It's just simply not the case. Uh, I've been watching the debates, and among the Democratic candidates, it's a melee. And I'm glad I did the episode in, on 1984, Stop Talking About Momentum. Because if you go back and re-listen to it, I may not line it up and say, "Well, this applies here and this applies there." I mean, partly because not all the debates and candidates had kind of happened yet, but um, it really does apply to 2020. The 1984 was a bigger election field than had been seen. There was a lot of newcomers. Um, you had a lot of different types of candidates appealing to different groups. You had the Democrats in a bit of a disarray after losing a surprise presidential election. Well, surprise in how badly uh, Jimmy Carter had lost his reelection. And we're in a bit of a quandary. We're like questioning, should we be appealing to Reagan voters? You know, and they didn't call it red states then, but in the Reagan states, or should we be reaching out and doing something new? And as we discussed then appealing to reagan voters were a little different than say appealing to trump voters today because there were two types you know reagan had california and so democrats were trying to figure out how to win that and one of the ways to win it was with a high-tech kind of image and so you had the atari democrats coming out and gary hart although he probably didn't use the term was was kind of the the head of this group um and you had others who thought maybe we should be more conservative uh ernest hollings for instance like i'm gonna be almost like a Republican, except on a few issues, such as welfare. You know, I'm going to be for food stamps, but on a lot of other things, I'm going to be hawkish on on defense and everything else, and and we can beat Reagan that way. So you had this debate where Reagan changed the Democratic Party more than the Democratic Party changed themselves. You also had some very similar dynamics, like for instance, Carter had been president for one term. He was still a Um, influential figure in the Democratic Party, even though he had lost badly in the election. He was still a former president. Walter Mondale was running as the former vice president. So attacking the Carter administration, which Gary Hart sort of aimed at a few times, was not, um, was was definitely pushed back on. Uh, And Walter Mondale would be using the mantle of having been in the last Democratic administration to use to kind of bash his primary opponents and you're totally seeing that go on right now with biden and obama um i do think that uh when i take a broader view and watch these debates and look at the, the two sets of you know 20 candidates on the stage and uh marianne williamson talking and Buttigieg judge and um all of these various uh the the you know, governors like Inslee um, and and others who are you know so many of them on the stage. It's hard not to think that that is a pro-incumbent factor. So when you're looking at um, you know what's going to be the effect of this, I I think if this continues, if this type of image of just the fracas continues, uh, I, I can't see where that doesn't help the incumbent. You're splitting up uh, opposition in too many ways. And I think that's that presents a president as a unifying figure. Now, Trump a unifying figure, that's kind of weird for me to say, right? Because Trump can be very divisive. But I think if you look within the um, GOP party, um, Trump endorses someone, they win the primary. He's got a pretty good control over the states and the state parties. I'd say probably Maybe Utah is an exception. Maybe the you know he's, there's a few states where he had, um he's got very little potential opposition in a primary. So you've heard about Mark Sanford and William Weld. Well, both of them are, are relatively flawed candidates, and they're going to have some issues really building meaningful support. I always will you know look things can happen, and you may find that uh, someone like a Weld or or Sanford what picks up more steam than we thought but i think within that republican party what i hear is republicans saying look he fights well i don't agree with this guy all the time i don't like some of the tweets or whatever but he fights or you have a a large group of people who do agree with them and do agree with the tweets um republican moderates disapproving of Trump you have it at about 26 percent in a recent exit poll I saw among GOP I didn't see much difference anymore between male and female in a recent um in a recent poll that I saw um I think that you know where there were Republican females say that were just outraged by Trump they left and they're no longer identifying as such so with but within that party I it, mean um it's a it's a mistake in, claim to say that uh, you know females vote democrat they do in the aggregate that is true but a large group of that percentage is younger female voters and minority female voters and you know traditional democratic constituencies if you look at the over 55 particularly married women over 55 that's always been one of the bases of the republican party and was a huge factor in George W. Bush's 2004 win. These are this is this is a group that probably would have voted for Bob Dole in 1996 or Mitt Romney in 2012. So, you know, in any case, um, so while I, you know, I don't think Trump Trump could be a polarizing figure. Quite frankly, I'm more polarizing than historical presidents. There could be little doubt about that. Um, poll numbers that you see, you know, still at this time putting him into the mid 40s at best in a lot of uh, national polls so this is a polarizing figure aiming at getting out a base for a small group it's going to be as i see it a kind of a 2004 type strategy like the one engineered by carl rove where it's get the base out and forget about swings um you know that worked in 2004 i think there were a lot of factors behind it though nation was that in a in a in the beginning of a war, um, Carrier's patriotism was being attacked left and right, and he, I think, had some problems as a candidate and still came one. Uh, it was one of the closest recent elections in terms of, um, you know, n- not winning a popular vote, but coming close. So, uh, do you want to execute a strategy like that? Again, as a question, was it really that successful when you were battling over Ohio in the last weeks? So it's definitely something to think about. That's the way I see it. One of the factors you've got to look at here as we look at the kind of Trump 2020 outlook is that when a president loses, Ford, Taft, Carter, to some extent, George H.W. Bush, there are, one of the most important factors is internal party disagreement. And, you know, that's what's defeated those presidents. Ford had a nasty primary with Reagan, Carter a nasty primary with Ted Kennedy, where it never really was repaired that well. In both cases, they sort of shook hands, slapped on the back, and you know there some vague pledges that oh you know I'll campaign for you, Mr. President, and then it didn't really significantly happen in either case. The the it was the wounds were deep, and it hurt that president's reelection. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. In 2016, I believe the Republican Party was split up pretty well, and there was a strong, never-Trump kind of group. I'm not sure about 2020. So I think one of the major hurdles that a president faces, uh, whether it's George H.W. Bush and Pat Buchanan, you know, or uh, Taft and Teddy Roosevelt, uh, when an incumbent president is losing, it's, it's party split up. They don't have a unified party. And whether it's been unified by force, sort of, uh, by, hey, either agree or get out, um, I think you, you're not going to see a significant primary. I could be wrong on that, but that's my call at this point. That's a major factor. The second thing that defeats incumbents is the economy. Um, and so that's something to keep watching because no president has won re-election when the economy's in recession in the election year. Um, close calls, too. Close calls, Truman 48, George W. Bush 2004. Close calls have been recently won by the incumbents. So, um I guess I could go back and add 1916 to that Woodrow Wilson as well. So, you know, those close calls are going to come. So there's a lot of factors there. And I think that, uh, so going back to the idea of this fracas and you have these debates, and there's some funny funny moments in the debate, very entertaining. There's two things going on. One is it does shift the attention away from the presidential bully pulpit a little bit. On the other hand, I also feel like it um, it presents a, you know disorganized party now does that matter after all you're the opposition party do you really need unity or a better question is, can you wait for unity? And I believe the answer to that is yes. So while this going on right now may not look great for the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party does not have an approval rating, right? They're not president yet. They're not in the White House. They're not a a single unified figure yet. Well, you have to worry about that if you're a Democrat is going to be in July when a nominee is picked. Can you unify then? And I think that's an open question. I think it would be silly to think that just because you have 20 or 25 candidates now, there won't be consolidation and unity at the end. I do think that um key moment in the in the early debates was Kamala Harris attacking Joe Biden on his position on busing. Um, you know, that's going very far back on an issue. He Joe Biden's a senator in nineteen seventy wins in the nineteen seventy-two election. Kamala Harris is a uh, senator, you know, um, in 2019. This is a very different time. And and someone who looks at history and tries to avoid presentism, you know, I think is going to be harsh about that approach, like taking words from that time. And on the other hand, we've moved on so much as a society that there is a question mark about Biden. And I think it's a legitimate one about age and um, does he come from an era where this where he's a, a figure that can matter anymore. Um, not physical age, not about like the demands of the presidency. I don't think that's really where I'd go. And running against Trump who's also older. Uh, that's not going to be as much of an issue. But I think when you, th- you know, a thought that I, I personally never gave during 2016 that I wish I've had a thought more of um, for predictive purposes is, you know, Hillary Clinton was running in 2016. You know, 20 years before that, she was by the side of Bill Clinton running for re-elections. That's 20 years that have passed. That means many voters were not even born yet then, and other voters hadn't had their opinion shaped then. And, that, and you see it coming up in the issues, say, around the crime bill, where in the 90s there was unified support. For this law and order approach, I mean, crime had just it was in the news every day. Gun, you know, especially in urban centers, had you hadn't had the urban centers gentrify yet. You know, New York comes back in a in a sense. You know, all these cities start getting improved downtowns and improved like buildings coming to them in in many cases, not all, but in in many of the major cities. But that wasn't happening yet, and so there was a, you know, now you're seeing issues that might have made sense in that time that no longer make sense. And I had thought later after the election that, you know, Hillary Clinton winning in 2016 could very well have been like Herber, Hubert, <laughs> Hubert Humphrey and Richard Nixon battling it out in 1988. Now, Hubert Humphrey wasn't alive then, I, I get it, I'm just saying this hypothetically, and there's no way Richard Nixon was getting a Republican nomination at the time, though he was more involved in politics than people realize. Uh, as a retiree. Um, That's my point, though. These are larger figures. And as a Gen Xer, Clintons have been part of my political life that I might have been a little blinded to that even. And so that's a factor to consider for Biden. I think Kamala Harris, that's the reason there was a wedge there that she could exploit. I do wonder if it was a little bit too early of an attack and a little bit too harsh of an attack uh, going after racism Um, in a major nominee of your own party. You know, the Democrats don't have that 11th Amendment that the Republicans have. Thou shall not attack another Republican. Uh, By the way, the 11th Amendment is a little bit self-serving on the part of Reagan. He was running against a liberal Republican, and Reagan as a conservative Republican and really a member of the kind of um, the 1960s version of, say, uh, the extreme right uh, at that time, at least gathering support from that area was really subject to intra-party attacks, and so s- creating, allowing the the state party chair in California, which is he, who issued that 11th amendment, allowing him to say that and have the referee kind of stop attacks was was definitely self-serving for Reagan. So that just a little historic note on that. But the Democrats never had that. But I do wonder if this is a little violation of even that unwritten rule that, you know, you don't go that hard after a fellow Democrat, especially in the first debate. Time will tell. Um, I do think in the second round of debates, the recent ones, I saw that, you know, I I could not help but see the comparison to John Glenn and attacking Mondale in those early debates with the noticeable difference that while there were a lot of candidates on the stage during that debate, they're all sitting down and, you know um and talking but i think that john glenn went after mondale for having too much union support for raising all this money uh for being too liberal that he wouldn't be able to stand up to special interests and that the democrats needed to move to the center and because glenn and mondale were attacking each other no one was attacking gary hart and he was able to surge That's one factor. The second factor is that Glenn just couldn't run in Iowa and New Hampshire. They're quirky states. They still are. They like the quirky candidate. I think Buttigieg is going to do very well in Iowa. That's my early prediction. Unless somebody else comes, I think Warren will do very well. They like candidates who have strong things to say. They like the odd candidate. They also like the Midwestern candidate. So, I think that Kamala Harris has an issue with those two states. I also think she may have attacked too early. Um, and in a, because there's a lot of election to go. It's not like you shouldn't be attacking, especially as you close in during the, say, Super Tuesday months. But attacking that early, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, people may feel differently. I'm not, you know, a professional political consultant or anything. I'm just looking at history, and you see what happened with John Glenn, very strong candidate, and boom. Um, virtually out of the election after new hampshire though he ran for a little bit more Um, and the other factor with kamala harris is i do wonder about iowa and new hampshire and whether there'll be enough appeal there and the problem with losing those two states is critical to momentum you know uh, when we when we had the last election, we said, stop talking about momentum. That was something that Mondale's team was saying. That's not what uh, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is saying. That's not what I'm saying. I think momentum is incredibly important, and you can't just sit out elections. Uh, there was the 2012 election where Giuliani tried to sit out until florida and wait and mccain had already won the nomination by then so that's not a good strategy so that's my early take it is very early there's a lot of candidates running you're probably going to see another candidate surge uh in a surprise uh before we're out here and before we get to the actual voting and then i also think some of these candidates have to drop out there just simply won't be popular support anymore to keep them uh, to keep maintaining them but certainly it was a good idea to do the 1984 episode i think it applies Quite a bit. Okay, so um, let me read an article from 1995. Get it up on the computer here. Not as organized in this episode as I normally am, but I, I didn't quite have the time. There's New York Times. Um, so Clinton in '95, he's got. Uh, let's see here. His average first-term approval rating is 50%. In the beginning of 1995, it's 40%. Um, In August, he's at 46%. It it dinks up a little, but still under that 50% mark. Here's a story in the New York Times from the beginning of 1995. Returning New Jersey, a pivotal state in presidential politics that gave Mr. Clinton a narrow victory in 1992. Yeah, who would think New Jersey was a swing state in the 90s? So was California. The president addressed his major fundraising event of the 1996 campaign tonight, urging Democrats to come to his side. What he said was a debate of first principles taking place in Washington. We ask for your voice, Mr. Clinton told Democrats gathered for a $1,000 plate dinner at the Garden State Convention Center in Somerset. We ask for your labors. We ask for your passion. The president heatedly assailed the Senate defeat today of Dr. Henry Foster Jr. as Surgeon General as a vote against women's right to choose abortion. And he vowed to keep a ban on assault weapons, referring to the narrow defeat of New Jersey Governor Jim Florio, a Democrat, a defeat that some have partially attributed to a support of gun control jim florell gave his governorship for it i'll do it if i have to give up the white house for it i'll do it earlier the president received a rousing welcome from auto workers at a ford plant here as he vowed to make japan open its markets to american automobiles and car parts and stumped for his own budget plan and economic program every time you wonder what we're doing up there, are you see a fighting going on in Washington? Just remember my test is will it create jobs? Will it raise incomes? Will it make working people more secure if they're doing their part? Mr. Clinton has repeatedly expressed a reluctance to be drawn into overt presidential politicking so soon before nineteen ninety six although his appearance at a Ford Edison Assembly plant with his wife, Hillary had all the trappings of a campaign event the president and mrs clinton donned black uaw jackets in front of cheering auto workers and then left as a sound system blared Bruce springsteen's born in the usa it was a sympathetic audience for mr clinton's stance against japan's trade policies with earl nail an official of the united automobile workers union telling the president to get us more jobs so that and then uh here's from just a few days before here's Clinton's State of the Union on immigration. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace, as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. Now, I have to be clear about that, that... um Tom Perez, the, when played that video recently, you know, had the the other side of it that, uh, you know, yes, Clinton was calling for border security, but certainly, and there was a Republican Congress. And presidents historically act differently when they have a party of the opposite party in Congress. That was true of Nixon and the Democrats. You know, Nixon was a much more liberal president because he had Democrats in Congress. Say, so. get it. But uh, also, to Perez says, you know, look, uh, Clinton wasn't trying to just deport people who had been living here a really long time. And he wasn't using the asylum to detain people. It was border security and getting rid of criminals. But the rhetoric's very similar. So, you know, what is this, really? Is it Trump, Clinton? No, no. You see in the policies, I mean, listen to Clinton talking about abortion and gun control. So on these major, you know, issues that people feel strongly about, Clinton's exactly different from Trump. But in the approach, and in this political situation he's in, I think— 1996 makes a good visor through which to see where 2020's going. Because Clinton was a, a flawed vehicle, no doubt about it. As you're getting into 1995, it was not very popular. We're talking about these similar approval ratings to where you're seeing the national approval for Trump right now. He would build it up by a couple points every month going all the way to 1996. 1994, he'd lost a midterm and a bad midterm. Um, his approval rating was down to 40% during that time. A really rough first term, Clinton, and that's kind of forgotten. Um, another similarity that I see, like Clinton had changed the media in a way, he changed the approach to the media, he game the media. Spinning was something that we just, Gets so common, but it was a new term then to spin the media, to just have people like your George Stephanopoulos or James Carville, others, D.D. Myers, just constantly making press statements, matching the pace of cable news. He was really the first campaign to do that. They had a satellite phone. I know it's crazy, right? Satellite phone um, in order to um, get the candidate available for news reactions at the time that it was needed. They were sending video of via satellite to news organizations. Sometimes news organizations were using that video. So – and Clinton in the, the way that he spoke and, and you know, was – and in using poll-tested statements and later in the, in the 1996 campaign, he's going to do what they call Mick issues. Like he's going to come up with these little issues like school uniforms or a video chip that would help parents – uh, decide what programs their kids could watch to try to corner the market for the suburban mom and to show family values to take that away from the Republican. He was also looking at these trade issues. And when you're starting to see some of the issues, now he had just passed NAFTA, so he had, was a little bit on the defensive on this, but you're talking about a a, a candidate who's a Democrat that could compete in Louisiana, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas. Florida, Arizona, different elections, you know, uh, West Virginia. So there are similarities there. And I think while I'm not – I'm drawing a rough sketch here and I'm kind of giving you the sheet of paper of my rough sketch instead of really doing it like I would in a normal podcast. But just look out in the future that I'll be looking at that trend more and maybe do a developed one on the 96 campaign and what was going on behind – And Clinton won that overwhelmingly, but it wasn't always clear. And if you talk to people in 1994, most people said Clinton was not going to be reelected, including Democratic members of Congress who didn't always like the Clintons very much. Prior to this podcast, I didn't know what a hollick was, uh, though I've seen them every time I go to the grocery store. It's that container that strawberries are in. You know, the one that's that uh, has little cuts for air on those little slits to get in and so you can see the strawberries, too. And That was a factor in a recent case about, of all things, the census. I'll explain it a bit. The Supreme Court has ruled on a number of cases recently. And, you know, there's definitely, as we, we alluded to earlier, there's some surprising results. There was a case about the 21st Amendment. Yes, the amendment that repealed Prohibition. I've talked about that, by the way, on this cast. So you heard it here first in a lot of cases where that amendment did more than just repeal Prohibition. It didn't just repeal the 18th Amendment. It also gave states the power to enforce control over the sale of alcohol in their borders. So in Tennessee, the Tennessee um, Wine and Liquor association is defending a law in tennessee law that's under attack tennessee law requires someone selling alcohol in tennessee to be a bona fide resident of tennessee two years before the application and the tennessee alcohol bureau a control bureau uh denied a couple of applicants applications they sued saying this is a violation of the 21st amendment uh that uh you know that you're taking and also this is a violation of the commerce clause that says the federal government's in charge of interstate commerce. You can't limit somebody just because they don't live there. You can't limit the person. Hey, you can tell me I can't sell alcohol after eight o'clock interstate. That's fine. But you can't tell me that because I'm from New Jersey, I can't sell it. And uh, interesting case. Uh, this is one where um, most of the court, Alito, Kavanaugh, Breyer, roberts Sotomayor, ginsburg kagan all agreed that to use the 21st amendment which again says the 18th amendment shall be repealed states have control over the sale of alcohol in their borders and three congress can use its um uh, congress should pass this amendment using the convention system which they did um How much power though, if you're controlling sales of alcohol to state, how much power do you have to limit interstate commerce, or is that the, the that should be the the federal government should be the superior government when it comes to commerce power? So the court did agree with that and struck down the uh, the law. Gorsuch and Thomas disagreed, and in the dissent, uh, he said, you know alcohol is a very serious issue." Um, for the court to discard a constitutional power is a very serious one and respectfully i do not see it in other words he sees in the the strict reading of the 21st amendment that states have control of the sale of alcohol for instance one of the examples he gives is you may want to know if a person's a resident for more than two um for more than uh, two years, why well, because it's easier to do a background check, so there's a real reason in the interest of the state that you need to um, limit a person to maybe two years of living in Tennessee to be able to sell alcohol so that you can you can it's easier for a state to do a background check of somebody who lives in that state right and to ask people who live in that state than than not so that was one of the reasons that he gave so but I think in that you're seeing at least a few indications. And the court went all over the place, and generally people did side with their normal sides. But there were a lot of breaks in some interesting cases, and what you don't see is absolute textualism being picked up by the entire court majority, though Gorsuch is certainly a champion of it, and with Thomas coming in at number two. And I would now put it Alito number three, and Kavanaugh not showing an early interest in um, textual, let's say, fundamentalism. All right. And looking more at court effects, that does not mean that I think on on some key issues, I think you're just going to see five, four, five, four. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Uh, What else we got here? The gerrymandering was brought up in two different cases. One involved um, Maryland where Democrats had gerrymandered the state, and the other involved North Carolina, where Republicans had gerrymandered the state. In both cases, the legislators in North Carolina and Governor Martin O'Malley of Maryland had made definite statements that the reason they were doing this was to win more House seats for their party, and thus, you know, in some sense, deny voters the partisan representation they may want, depending on where they live. So that issue came up, The court has, for now, it's a 5-4 decision, decided that they do not want to act in gerrymandering cases. Obviously, a lot of history brought up there that the very act of gerrymandering is a political action. Uh, Roberts writes the decision. Roberts says the court cannot. There's no reasonable standard. There's no way to measure this. Kagan writes the dissent. It's a very strong dissent says for the first time the court's not going to intervene when constitutional rights are being usurped because they feel they can't. Um, Kagan says, and I think this is the most convincing argument on that side, that um, c- you know members of Congress, parties, state legislators are all using computer systems to determine how to align the states so that they can max out the partisan revol- results and pack voters into districts where they're going to vote alike. And the court is refusing to use the same tools. You know, it should be possible, in her argument, for the court to use some systems to hire experts, like courts do in a lot of cases, to get expert witnesses and figure out if something had been too harshly partisan um, gerrymandered. And that, for instance, like there are cases where there are 5,000 ways to do districts in a state, and only one results in a certain partisan outcome, and that was the result chosen, and that a court should be able to make that kind of determination. For, jo- for, for Roberts, for Alito, for Gorsuch, for Kavanaugh, for Thomas, this is way too far for the court system to intervene. One of the things that Roberts points out is, well, you have legislation in Congress that uh, in the House to stop gerrymandering so it's not like congress doesn't have the ability to regulate itself there's there's majority support in one chamber for a bill that would stop congress from being able to write their own districts you know in these states to to stop gerrymandering so um it's a political process and should go through the legislatures that for the courts to intervene it would just be one more thing in their opinion that would tarnish the image of the court that would have us in a mess, that would have us, all the courts in a mess every time politicians did anything, and who are they to determine what, you know, how political activities go. Uh, So any action on gerrymandering outside of racial gerrymandering is going to be stalled for some time until there's a change on the court, I believe, or change in somebody's opinion. Um, But you had an interesting case here, another one, What's the best way to build a highway through? Um, you know, you wouldn't think at first it's a public park, right? That would be these days. But bring ourselves back to the 1950s, and we always look at it as a historical event, how great it was, right, that Eisenhower built the interstate commerce system. Well, don't forget, one of the ways they did that was to build through public lands and sometimes public parks. Parks were easier. didn't have to pay. You didn't have to take down houses. You didn't have to pay for land. So. The Department of Transportation required uh, was required to demonstrate that when they took park lands which they were doing to build highways, there were no feasible and prudent alternatives to building through public lands. The Department of Transportation, the Federal Department plans to build through interstate they plan to build Interstate 40 through Overton Park in Memphis, Tennessee. A group called the Citizens to Preserve Overton Park brought suit against him in the Western District of Tennessee. They claim the secretary had not complied with that ruling. He hadn't looked to see if there were feasible and prudent alternatives. A summary judgment is granted by the court. The Sixth Circuit of Appeals affirms the district court decision. It's taken to the Supreme Court. Um, summary judgment means that they're going to continue building. The Court of Appeals it confirms that The citizens of Overturn Park go to the Supreme Court. And in 1971, in a decision written by Thurgood Marshall, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Feasible and Prudent Clause was upheld and the summary judgment was improperly granted. Now, it doesn't block Route 40 immediately, uh, Interstate 40 immediately, and also the citizens have a long fight. It's not till the 1980s when it's decided that uh, 40 will not be built through that park. They're fighting it still for decades, but it did develop a theory, uh, two theories really, one used by the dissent and one used by the plaintiffs in decisions um, on the... Uh, one used by the court and the other used by the dissent in a decision on a recent case about the U.S. Census. So, as you, if you've been following the news, you know that uh, Commerce Secretary William Wilbur Ross at President Trump's instruction wanted to add a question about citizenship onto the census. And um, they eventually went through with plans to do that. The reason they gave the court is that they were trying to enforce the the Voting Rights Act. But that was only after some internal action within the administration and sort of like shopping around the idea to find out if any departments had anything they could use to kind of justify adding this question, which led the court to believe, and this is Justice Roberts' decision, that the real reason that the secretary added the question was not the one in the in the record and in in the court filings though given um that there was some other reason and um yeah the opposition was bitter Uh, you know the dissent uh thomas writes the dissent and says you know for the first time we're going to say that we don't trust a, a an official but you know and that there's some alternative motive that the court can kind of suss out. And, and how can you do that? And and it's, you know, it could be valid. Um, that could be a very slippery slope. I, I do understand that argument. Uh, and on the other hand, Roberts is saying, well, uh, if you don't tell us why you're doing something honestly, truthfully, how can we as a court review it? we need a real record to review if you're an administrative body like the commerce department you have to tell us why you're engaging in an action and that has to be the real reason and if we don't have that it's not reviewable by the court and it can't stand and we can make judgments on it and so that's what he's that's what he's you know said in this case it goes back to this overton park case where overton park um you know, established that the court could review what an administrative body was doing if they were not following their own procedures that they're supposed to follow. Like they were supposed to look to see if there was an alternative to the park. And that had not been done, uh, at least in Justice Marshall's opinion. However, it also says that a presumption of correctness must be given to an administrator. And that goes back to another case which involves the state of Oregon and a requirement that hallux be used if you're selling strawberries or other berries in the state of Washington. And there was a company from California that used a metal container and wanted to sell strawberries and being banned from it, they sued the state of Oregon and said, this is just capricious against us. You're not following your own administrative procedure properly. And in addition to saying that, hey, there's some reasons for Hallecks, after all, you have to see the strawberries and make sure that they're good. That's what the state of Oregon wanted. But more than that, the court was saying we have to defer to administrators like the State Department of Agriculture in Oregon, rather than we as a court, the guys wearing the robes deciding how to sell strawberries in a state. We have to have a presumption that the executive is right and and that the legislature is right, because in an administration... In an administrative body, the legislature is speaking through that administrator on a day-to-day basis. The, the members of a state legislature, or the member of Congress, can't be out there watching the strawberries being sold. They delegate that authority to an executive body. You have to trust that executive body. I mean, this is not the legal phrasing, but this is more or less what the decision meant. And um, you have to assume that an administrator is not acting capriciously unless you can show that they are and the court must assume that can't go in and investigate every little thing because it might be capricious. You have to show evidence that it is. So that's basically what that, um, case and, uh, see if I can find the name of that case here, but Overton Park case cites it and, well, you know, we'll find it. We'll find it. But in any case, um, I think that said these are some interesting cases that have come through the Supreme Court recently, and if you look at our current politics, where okay, this is very different you know i i I talked about President Clinton possibly like manipulating the media, but this is very different. You have a, a Trump who's going on and tweeting about things and in many cases giving you his intentions right um and Supporters are reading it and seeing, you know, they're getting their news kind of from the presidential tweet as a source. Um, Courts are looking at that too and saying, okay, well, you have this intention here. And then we have the official cabinet members that are saying they're doing something for one thing. And then the president saying they're doing things for the other. Expect to see that battle show up in future cases now, I believe, where you're going to have the kind of the Thomas side that says, hey, you have to give the presumption of authority, the presumption of credit correctness to the executive. And then we'll keep watching if you continue to get Roberts on a side of, well, if we have evidence of the contrary, that we are, you know, that we're not being given the right reason for this action by an administrative body or by a cabinet, that there's something else involved, perhaps politics, you know, not directly said, but perhaps that is, we can rule on it. And we can decide. And he's been mixed on it because in the cases involving immigration and the um, stay order and immigration early in President Trump's term, Roberts was not someone who advocated that. He actually said, are you going to use this guy's campaign statements every time you have a case before here? You know, he's president now. It's different from a person running for office. So we've seen a change there, at least in Roberts, who, on certain things, is a swing vote in the court. Okay, so that's enough discussion about the Supreme Court. Uh, One more thing before I go, I'm going to, you know, look, uh, I think another one of the issues, as much as, like, Trump is in the news, so is um, AOC, and so is the idea of socialism, the attack, you know, 2020 is going to be fought on, kind of Trumpism versus socialism, and I have an episode in 2009, which was one of the most popular episodes ever of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. And it just strikes me as funny. The whole reason we did an episode on socialism is because Obama was considered a socialist. He was being attacked in that time, in that way. And that, I think, for someone who's a progressive Democrat right now, that would almost be something funny. And at the time, we had quoted... Various socialist and socialist labor parties in the United States in 2009, who said that Barack Obama, you know, he's not showing up in any of our meetings. He's, he's his ideas aren't very welcome, um, and and referred to some of his policies. So we also go over the history of socialism in the United States. I talk a lot about Jack London, who wrote this book called The Iron Heel, which painted socialism as the good part of a fight between fascism and socialism, right? And there is some evidence of that fight going on. Now, if you look at the example of of the Soviet Union, you have something very different where there was a system that lacked some of those freedoms. And so you see both sides of that. And we do discuss that on the cast and and the pros and cons. But that episode from 2009, I just re-listened to it. And, uh, boy, does I think, I I think we're going to have to rerun it because I think it really, uh, has a lot to say about the debate today, where on one hand, something that's being attacked as very a foreign idea to the United States, you know, was able to get a million votes in, um, in a 1912 election, you know, and and mayors and cities and governors at least leaning that direction and was almost a third party in the United States and thus not very foreign. And it was a movement that perhaps got um, molded into the other parties, mostly the Democratic Party, but um, into the other party. So it's not an idea that's so foreign. There are historic roots for it. And there's also, you know, some things to think about. You know, and including the questions of, um, you know, well, uh, I always think of this this way. And again, this this podcast is a really rough sketch, so excuse me if I'm not sort of proving everything and kind of having examples for all of it. But just to give you my thinking generally on these issues. Politics to me is a lot, in a lot of ways, is the avoidance of oppression, right? Democrat... Democratic politics, small d, is the avoidance of oppression. Nobody wants it, okay? One side is looking and saying, I'm, and whether they're right or wrong, you know, I'm looking at people that are very liberal and they're going to be in government controlling me and stopping me from everything I want to do for whatever it is. I want to own a gun. I want to hunt a fish. I want to drive a truck. I want to start a business. I want to do, say what I want to say. I want to listen to what speakers I want. And on the other hand, there's a group saying, I'm worried about these people in power are going to be controlling my economy, controlling what income, controlling the choices I can make about my body, my family, my my ability to um, uh, work freely. Um, and, and just, you know, the banking system, what loans I have to pay, contr- you know, controlling my economic destiny through a variety of laws and then eventually even controlling my democratic right to vote. Politics is about the avoidance of oppression. And so you're seeing both sides light up in the extreme of their opposition to an idea by by virtue of that. You know, in other words, the socialist label is being brought out because it's being seen as if you elect Bernie Sanders, say he's going to turn into Joseph Stalin or, um, you know, uh, and You know, I think that more nuance is needed in the discussion there that those who are advocating certain socialist policies are not necessarily looking to destroy the democratic framework or to end all capitalism. So, but we don't tend to have nuance in our debates, do we? But I will do plan to rerun that uh, 2009 episode uh, in the near future. Till now, I want to thank you for listening. Oh, and i got to give a plug to the uh, extra podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Help support me, get a lot more content, really, a lot more. Um, all of these we've I've conducted, as I've been doing the Arc of Commerce, I've been talking about that episode and what I've done and reading things that didn't get into that episode, and I'll be doing more of that. So please sign up, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here.